Hello and welcome to Heads of Medical Live, where we are here with none other than Dr. Nora. And Dr. Nora, before you introduce yourself, today's title is called Do I Regret Being a Medical Doctor? So, viewers, they want to know. Do you regret being a medical doctor? <laughs> well, you know, Ash, thank you so much for the introduction. Thank you so much, guys, for joining us today. That is a very loaded question, I have to say. Do I regret it on the whole? Absolutely not. There are, however, some days where it is really tough and you know, you're working really hard and you might even have seen some of my previous videos where I did a series of three where I spoke about what I do on an average day. And certainly some of those days that I do do can be very tiresome. And sometimes I think to myself, why don't I just have a normal, regular nine to five job doing something very pleasant. But you know what, on the whole, it is such a fulfilling job. I love it. I get to help people every single day and it just feels gratifying and I absolutely adore my job. So Okay, so the answer is, all you guys watching out there <laughs> is that no, you do love your job. But I guess, because I've been watching your recent videos, you're working in Southport and Surfers, yes. and a lot of what I find is you work long hours, minimal run, lunch breaks, you're yes. always behind schedule, <laughs> lots of patients getting crammed in. Like, like you guys out there, you probably, um, I, I don't know exactly what your situation is, but can you explain mm. what is going on with your lunch breaks, your bookings, how does that all work? As really good question. That is that's such a good question. Yes, so you might have seen from my previous videos, I do look like I'm completely flat out. And yes, I'm not gonna lie, usually about 80% of the time I am virtually flat out. So what usually happens in the morning is I have an appointment book which tells me whether I'm doing 10 or 15 minute appointments, depending on which practice I'm working at. And generally speaking, that allows us to have about 20, 25 patients in a normal eight hour session. However, in some situations, we do have patients that walk in or some people who need to urgently see the doctor, in which case we call them double bookings. Now, more often than not, there are a lot of people who want to see me because they like me, <laughs> but also they, or they walk in there and they're urgent patients and they need to see a doctor there and then. So that's what happens when I get to be quite behind in times because I'm seeing more patients than I'm supposed to be seeing or, or that I'm structured to be seeing in my appointment book. And so I'm having to fit in all of these patients, which for me, I do tell the receptionist every time I start my shift, I say, this is what my full capacity is today. Don't book me in more than X amount of patients because I know realistically, I'm not gonna fit that many people in and I'm gonna be tired and I'm not gonna perform as well and I need to have my breaks. So if I can keep to a structure, get the receptionist on board, tell them how many patients I'm willing to see today. Generally speaking, I do actually get out pretty much on time and I do usually get a nice, a decent-ish lunch break, which allows me to run to the shops, get a sandwich and come back, refuel and re-energize for the afternoon session. All right, I'm a bit confused. Okay. You're saying that there's a battle between you and the receptionists and the patients. What exactly is going on there? Yeah, it's not so much a battle per se. So whenever, so as a GP, I am a contractor, which means that I'm working for myself. So it's up to me how many people I want to see throughout the day. If, for example, I'm on a day when I'm feeling a bit tired and, you know, I don't feel like I'm going to see that many patients, I can quite easily say to the receptionist, I pick up the phone and I say, hey, receptionist lady or man, um, is it okay if you don't double book me any more patients? And generally speaking, they usually will call me up to ask me. We have an intercom system inside. They'll say, hey, Dr. Nora, do you want to see any more patients today? I've got a double, I've got a patient who's just walked in. They've got a, a finger laceration. They really need to see a doctor. What would you like us to do? So in those situations, we'll kind of go backwards and forwards as to how many patients extra I want to see and, you know, whether or not I can actually handle that during my time. So it's not so much a battle. It's a very much a, we, we all talk to each other. We're all very, co we're cohesive team we talk to each other regularly we kind of get to know each other a bit better and the longer i've worked with these 
particular receptionist, the better they understand how I work and how I run as well on time. So yes, there's a bit of difficulty some days and sometimes you just can't help it because in some situations you'll have a patient who says, I just want a prescription and then they'll come in and they'll actually really kind of go off on a tangent. They might speak about their marital breakup or they might speak about how the kids are unhappy or, you know, and there's something usually unearthed there and that could be a depression, it could be anxiety. And those kind of consultations do take a bit of time. And as a general practitioner, I don't feel it's a good duty of care just to say to them, you know what, uh, you're already booked in for five minutes here, you, you gotta go. Because if, those person, if that person feels comfortable talking to me and opening up, they might want to tell me that they're feeling suicidal, in which case I don't wanna send that person out home. You know, they might think, oh, the GP didn't listen to me today, I feel like, you know, that's it, no one wants to hear me anymore, and they might do something silly. So as a general practitioner, I always put my patients first, and that's why very often, as I said in the previous video as well, we do often run late because we want to give the time to people who might be coming in with something, but then really wanna to talk to you about something else. So there is a bit of uh, a situation where sometimes you've got too many patients booked in and then there's that one patient who kind of takes half an hour instead of taking the 10 minutes, in which case that pushes everybody behind. But generally speaking, actually, I don't know how it happens, but throughout the whole day, it does actually tend to equal up and sometimes you end up catching up. So it works out. All right, sorry, I've dived deep into this conversation, but I just really want to understand because I guess a lot of viewers out there, maybe they're thinking about coming to the doctor, maybe they're in medical school right now, maybe their GP's already and they're just wondering for a other situations out there, but you touched on a few issues and I just, I want to explain it to the viewers. Okay. okay you, you mentioned something called double booking. Yes. Like for me, what does that mean? And furthermore, it sounds to me like a patient's consultation length is potentially infinite depending on the issues that they have. So mm. you, when you have lots of bookings, you pretty much just have to listen to the patients and guide them and, and diagnose them. That's the battle that's happening? Correct, so a couple of things. So double booking, so as I said to you earlier, so either I'll have a 10 minute appointment session or a 15 minute appointment session. So generally speaking, about 70% of the time, people don't usually use up the whole of the 15 or 10 minutes of their consults. 10 minutes, yes, usually you do use up, but 15 minutes is sometimes a bit too long for a person who's coming in for a prescription, which might take six minutes. Um, so in which case, if a receptionist knows, or if I know that that person's only gonna take a small amount of time, we can actually double book a patient, which means put a patient into that 15 minute slot alongside with the other patient. Therefore, you see two patients in that one slot than the one person. So that's what we mean by double booking. Invariably though, most of the time, it does push things a little bit back. And usually I say to my reception, Stuff, I can't do more than one or two double bookings per hour because otherwise it just throws everything out of whack. Okay, I'm starting to understand it. So you're kind of like gauging the feel of the pulse of the you know the people that are coming in and visiting definitely, you, and you're definitely. liaising with the reception staff to let them know if it's just quick consultations today or if some deep heavy issues Correct. happening. Correct. Correct. All right, this is this is going to be fun. Okay, this is going to be a fun session. We already got people tuning in and asking questions in the chat. So guys. Everyone tuning in, ask your questions today. Dr. Nora is going to be answering it live. Thank all you. about medical, medical school, graduating, working as a GP, working so as a doctor, much. working <laughs> in the hospitals. And this is actually very interesting for me. So you grew up going through NHS and working in the hospitals. And yes. now you're kind of like a family doctor. Yes. So which is more stressful? Being a family doctor, liaising with all these patients, not having lunch break, or working those long, long shifts oh, as a hospital doctor? You know, Ash, that is such a good question. So as an NHS doctor, I spent about five years rotating through different hospitals, primarily in London, um, for five years of my life. So I spent a long time doing that. Now, I was actually reflecting on this the other day because I was talking to one of my colleagues who still is an NHS doctor in the UK. And as an NHS doctor, you tend to be rotating through four or six monthly sessions where you might be a gastro doctor, which means a tummy doctor, you might be a, a surgeon randomly, you might be a breast surgeon, you might be attached to different groups. And 
I was thinking in my head that those sessions that we do, so four months at a time, it's really hard to adapt to a new job every four months. So imagine for yourselves out there, if you had to change jobs every single four months or every six months, you probably kind of feel a bit like, what am I doing, what am I doing? So that for me was actually quite tough. And also on top of that as well, we actually had to do, so it was a, but all the hospitals I worked at were very busy um, London hospitals that were, you know, we had every single pathology there. It was super busy. So as a junior doctor, you really had to do sometimes 14 days in a row. And there were night shifts and there were, you know, it was really intense. But at the time, looking back at now, I think, how on earth did I do it? Do it. But at the time I was like, you know, adrenaline rushes in, you're really kind of doing it, you're going really fast. But now when I think back, I don't think I could ever go back and do that again. So I guess my answer is, I love my job as a family doctor. The reason I went into this is because I didn't want to do any night shifts. I, I really like the kind of the lifestyle balance. Yes, you're right, sometimes I am pushed for lunch, but on the grand scheme of things, I love the continuity of care. I love being able to see a patient from a to Z or even seeing a pregnant mum who's got a baby and then seeing that baby grow up and become a, you know, a teenager or an adult in life. I think I really enjoy that continuity of care. So for me personally, I'm happy I've left the NHS. I'm glad I did it. I'm very glad I did it because it was an experience for me and it helped me to grow as a person, but I am happy with my final destination. But is it more stressful working in the hospital compared to as a family doctor? Yeah, good question. So. As, again, I'll refer to my friend that I was speaking to on the phone yesterday who works in the UK. So we are both GPs and we work very much in isolation, whereas in a hospital you're working as a team. So there's a lot of camaraderie, there's a lot of people you can ask as well if you're unsure. There's like a chain of ladders. So you can kind of say, oh, I'll speak to my senior, do you know, is this right, is this wrong? Um, whereas in a GP practice, you're kind of at the top. You don't really have anybody else to talk to except for your colleagues. And if you're working in a small general practice where there may only be one or two other doctors there, you're very isolated and you might get to see them at lunch break, you might get to see them at a tea break, but generally speaking, it's harder to pick up the phone because you don't want to disturb them whilst they're seeing patients either. So it's very much an isolated profession. Yes, you can obviously speak to your colleagues, but it's unlike the team hospital where you can just bleep someone and you're on the phone to your consultant. So yeah, that's probably the, the hardest thing about being a family doctor is the potential isolation that it is around that job. So as a family doctor, it's you, you're responsible for your patient. There's Pretty not really much, much yeah. people to ask. I guess you can refer your patients to specialties, sure, absolutely. but you're there in the den. You're there you in the den, exactly. Whereas back in hospital days, you used to have lots of supervisors that you can ask yeah, questions yeah, to bring them up sure. at night. For sure. I mean, in saying that though, I do, you know, I have on occasions um, rung up the on-call doctor at the hospital to ask for advice. You know, it seldom happens because they usually... They hang up on you, right? No, no, no. They're, they're actually really good. They're actually really good because they respect general practitioners because usually they tend to be a bit more junior. So they, they actually respect you. And yes, you can get good advice, but generally speaking, they'll just say refer them to the hospital. So, you know, I've kind of learned that. But just need to refer on But when you're working in the hospitals, when you have to call up your supervisors, did they talk to you or did they just oh hang the phone God. up to you? That like, is like a whole, whole ball game. If we've got time for this, I will quickly briefly touch on this. So as, as I, when I graduated medical school, you, you become something called a foundation doctor in the NHS and there's foundation years one and two. So foundation year doctor one, you often had to, your, your seniors would often give you the really rubbish jobs that they didn't want to do, which would be like speaking to the neurosurgeon, speaking to the neurologist, speaking to all of these specialties that nobody ever wanted to talk to you because they were always really arrogant. So as a foundation year with Dr. One, I absolutely dreaded picking up the phone and calling these specialties because I knew, one, they were going to hang up on me, two, they were going to ask me a million questions that I didn't know the answers to, and three, they were going to be like, 
who are you? Why didn't you give me your, your registrar, your senior? Why am I talking to you? So yes, definitely at that stage as an F1, um, as an F2 as well, definitely there was a sense of, I feel so inferior that I don't even want to approach these people. And of course, Ash, there have been occasions as well as a junior doctor that I was actually uh, hung up on the phone because they just didn't want to talk to me because I was so junior. Um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It is crazy. But did I have a point hanging up on you? Well, you know, when I think back on myself, probably <laughs> yes, I probably wasn't as well rehearsed. And that's something that I certainly did learn over the years. I actually learned how to communicate really phenomenally well on the telephone. So as a, a foundation year one doctor, I barely knew how to even say hello, hello, my, my name is, you know, really stuttering. And then you kind of like, you do a hundred times, you actually learn to say the salient points that they need. And actually they all really enjoyed talking to me on the phone because I'd give them like, bam, 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 bam. This is what I need to do. Can you help me with this? And then I felt that was my confidence grew as well. So it kind of helped being that kind of ward monkey that does all of the jobs to progressing later on because now I spend a lot of time on the telephone talking to people. Okay, so you got into the fire of the hospitals and that's what kind of trained you to be a machine, optimize your words, how to communicate, really how to communicate. That yes. was the biggest skill you learned Massive. in hospital. And I guess working those, was it how many days in a row did you work? I think it was like 12 or 14 days. It was and something insane. how many insane. hours every day did you work? Yeah, it would be like seven or eight hours And how a many day. steps did you climb in hospitals every oh day? Oh my God. Four <laughs> There was literally a hospital that I used to work at and our ward was on um, level three or four. And I would literally, because you know, the, the lift was so slow and it was so hard because you had to share it with patients. And I was always running late in the morning. So I'd have to leg it up these, I don't know, three flights of stairs, like literally double flights of stairs. And I would be like, so fit. And now I think about it, I'm like, I could never do that. I could literally never do that. I could do it in like five minutes. But so that was the good thing about it. You know, it was really good exercise. You're very stressed. You get very slim. <laughs> you probably don't eat the good food though because you're often very, very quick um, and you're running around in the wards. But yes, definitely um, it was good exercise for sure. It sounds to me that you miss those days. In a way I do, but- As a GP, you sit down all day? You do, I, I mean, yes, you do sit down, but I also take the time to go for walks as well. And I do a lot of exercise in the morning to, to make up for it. So what do you mean you do exercise in the morning? So in the mornings, I like to go for walks. So I really enjoy walking, I enjoy stretching, and do a bit of um, um, weights as well. Um, just do a bit of exercise and muscle training, which which really helps keep my body in shape. But you don't do it during the day at work, or do you? Well, not really. So generally speaking, at work, usually what I'll do is I'll either <laughs> run to the toilet <laughs> or go to the kitchen to make a cup of tea or get my sandwich. That's pretty much where my three, three locations are during my workplace. Okay, so you sit down a lot at work, focusing on a patient, yes. you try to exercise in the morning, back in the day when it was in hospitals. Was it more stressful or is it more stressful now? I guess now you're responsible, so it's a different kind of stress. It is, Whereas yeah. when you're younger, you don't know as much, you have more excuses to make. Yeah, yeah, and you got lots of support. support. You got lots of support. So do you prefer being a family doctor or do you miss those days in hospital? A part of me misses the teamwork that is around with the um, hospital work. Like I do miss hanging out with my, say hanging out, but just seeing my colleagues on a regular basis. Um, you know, I miss some friends that I've made, um, but you know, part of me also doesn't want to go back there. Like I'm quite happy that I don't have to do that again, because if I had wanted to do that, I probably would have taken a career in surgery or general medicine, but I am quite content with just being a family doctor, um, going to my work every day and not having to, to run around. And yes, there is a responsibility and yes, there is a stress. It's a different kind of stress, but it's something that over the years now, uh, I've kind of acclimatized to it. And I think I'm, I'm hopefully still going to enjoy it. I mean, let's see where time takes us, but I, I do still enjoy it currently. Okay, so guys, I know there's a lot of questions up in the chat. I'm gonna ask, I'm gonna ask those questions to Dr. Nora very soon. I just, I just wanna get in on this, I wanna understand. So, let me just understand. Hospital work, 
Yeah. You, you're like a machine. You're, yes. you're, you're solving lots of issues in a machine. Whereas a family doctor, you're really getting personal with the patient. Definitely. Is that why you like family medicine over hospital? Or is there anything else to yeah, it? Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing is continuity of care. So in the hospital, when you when you go there, you, you do the ward round, you see the 15 patients with the consultant and you're scribbling away, but that patient may only be there for like three days or two days, you know, depending on which ward they're in. However, and then you don't see them again, and I'm then they're gone. Again. Yeah, and well, they're good, gone. Good, good, Which good. is good. You <laughs> yeah. don't, I mean, sometimes we did see some regular offenders and they usually would come back, but, offenders. you know, we say regular <laughs> offenders, but or frequent flies, there's lots of different words <laughs> you can use for it. Um, but, you know, that's it. Then you don't get that, you don't, build that rapport with them and you just think okay that's kind of it that's the end of our journey together you don't know what happens to them thereafter but whereas with general practice or with family doctoring you can kind of follow that patient through from the minute they say hello to you and if they choose to come back and see you you can follow them through their life events and certainly I've I've seen people grow in their life I've seen people have babies I've seen people get divorced you know there's this whole like it's almost like watching a drama series sometimes oh. so it's nice just to kind of have that continuity and be a constant for that person so then and I've had people follow me I mean I've moved around a couple of practices now but I've had people follow me for two three years because they want that continuity they want somebody just to look after them their babies you know I've had women who have had babies and now they've got two-year-old children and they really want to continue on with their GP because they like that and I am the kind of person that likes that as well if I had been somebody who didn't really like that continuity I probably would have gone for a surgical job which is where you see a patient in and out and you don't get to kind of see them again and see what happens afterwards so yes I suppose I, I thrived that kind of continuity of care all right, we're gonna be getting into the nitty gritty of continuity of care very soon. But first, I'm gonna ask you some of the questions coming in from chat. A lot of people saying hello, hello guys. Hi. Hello Tom, hello Powell, hello King. The King has signed up oh to the God, chat. Oh my God, that's awesome. Actually got a question. Austin, Austin's got a question as well. He wants to chat. Guys, if you actually have questions, list them out. For example, King yes. is asking. Mm. He's saying the Queensland government it's a mask question, by the way. Okay. They have said that you have to wear a mask in hospitals. Yes, that's right. So do, does that apply with GP practices? Very good question. So as I, as a From spot, the king. <laughs> as far as I have understood this article that I read yesterday, actually, um, patient, oh, sorry, staff members that are from certain parts of Queensland, for example, I think Logan and Brisbane, some of the affected areas with coronavirus, they actually have been asked to wear masks at work, which is actually quite interesting because people who aren't from those areas may not be wearing masks, but it is because there was an outbreak in the detention center and there's also been a recent outbreak in Pimpama as well. So different areas are asking people to wear masks. In terms of general practice, so currently our regulatory authority, which is the RACGP, which is the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners as of today have not said that we do need to wear masks um, for all of our patients generally speaking it's only for patients who uh, we tend to sort of screen our patients anyway we're very lucky in general practice but we tend to screen our patients if they've got fever or flu-like symptoms we don't really tend to see them face to face we do telephone consults and if in that kind of weird situation where we might see a patient like that we generally ask them to wear a mask and then we might wear a mask ourselves but we're very very good at fishing out those patients now because we've been doing it for like six months now so we don't really see many of those kind of virally type patients um, so yes masks are still being used in general practice but it's as of today it's not yet mandatory but things can always change I say one thing today and it might change tomorrow okay it's a very good question because it leads on to an experience you had last week I'm not going to tell you about it right now because I want to show a segment of your work life in Southport but first guys everyone tuning in ask your questions in the live chat section. Your questions will get answered live by Dr. Nora. Let us know where you're from, tuning in the world. Let us know your favorite medicine. What's your favorite field of medicine? Mm. Do you want to be a surgeon? 
you want to be a family practitioner? Yeah. Do you like cosmetic stuff? There's so many yeah. different fields. So many. I'm asking Dr. Nora about her opinions on all the different fields out there. But first, we're going to jump into your Southport experience. Southport, you have a nice, beautiful clinic over there. You did a nice vlog of all the equipment you use at work and your, your center. I especially loved the videography of uh, the toilet. <laughs> the disabled, large disabled toilet. It was very, very beautiful. It's a big toilet. So guys, I'm going to jump into that clip, show you a little bit of the experience, and then we're going to ask some questions about it. I've got loads of paperwork that I need to do. I've got a couple of reports I need to do and I've got about half an hour to do it. I probably will stay in after work just to finish off my paperwork, uh, type up my notes, make sure that everything is 100%, 100%, we always like having 100%. And on the walls, you can see we've got some posters and this is really important actually. So this one says, as a practice policy, we don't prescribe medicines that people can get addicted to because we're not that kind of practice and I'm not that kind of doctor. So make sure that if you are that kind of person looking for that doctor, you can come here, but chances are you're not gonna get anything from us. Um, we also have a zero tolerance. Now luckily, fortunately for us, we don't usually have to enforce this. We don't really have to kick people out of the practice because they're being rude. However, on some occasions we have unfortunately had to call security patients who get rowdy and usually, it tends to be the patients who have been rejected from this medicine that they tend to go off and huff. They'll swear at me, they'll swear at, they'll swear at the staff and they'll just storm out the front door All right, Dr. Nora, I, I don't actually believe that patients shouting, screaming, doing all this kind of nonsense oh at work, gosh, you know, getting yeah. kicked out by security, does that actually happen? Yes. And guys, I kind of know the story yes. <laughs> because it's related to masks yes. and probably you wish masks were mandatory in GP practices, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what happened last week? Yes, so literally last week, actually, it's funny that you brought that up right now. Um, last week I was seeing patients and um, I could hear like a bit of a ruckus going on in, in the reception because my, my room isn't too far from the reception desk. So I see this guy come up to our beautiful, our lovely, gorgeous receptionist and he says to her, I've got an appointment at X amount of time. And she says to him, oh, I can't see your name on the, re the appointment book. And he goes, oh, is it, isn't this the walk-in clinic? And she says, no, it's not the walk-in clinic. Do you, do you want an appointment? Are you booked in? And I kind of heard this conversation and I know that people who have this certain kind of look to them and kind of a certain attitude and a certain way they approach people, I could kind of sense this guy was a bit of trouble because of the way he was kind of talking. And people generally tend to be very confident and forthright with receptions when they're after something dodgy. So um, she, they went back and forth a little bit and uh, she tried to book him in and then he sat down. And then I could hear him coughing in the waiting room. And I immediately picked up the phone to the, recep the receptionist. And I said to her, that, who, is, who is that that's coughing? Is it that guy? And he needs to wear a mask ASAP because we've got an elderly person sitting in the waiting room. We've also got a baby and a, a parent as well. And she was like, yeah, yeah, don't worry. I've already given him a mask. So I'm like, okay, fine, fair enough. And then suddenly this guy starts coughing even more, like a really loud cough. And it almost felt like he was putting it on. And I just thought to myself, gosh, this person is terrible. So I pick up the phone again and I say to the receptionist, I'm not going to see this person. He needs to leave the medical center because he's obviously, either one, he's putting it on or two, he's going to be like infecting my patients and I'm not happy. And at this stage, I, you know, I'm with, a, I'm with a patient, I'm consulting with a patient right now and I can kind of hear this outside my door. So not only do I have to manage my appointment book, but I also have to manage who's, who's outside in the, in the waiting area. So anyway, the receptionist says to me, yes, don't worry, I, I will deal with it. But whilst this is all happening, and the walls are very thin in my practice, as you can tell, um, there was this, uh, I suddenly heard like this guy shouting and he was saying, um, I, don't, I need to be seen, I need to be seen. And then the, there was an elderly lady there, as I said, and she was shouting at him and she was, she was actually swearing at him saying, beep, beep. 
beep, you need to leave. You're, how would you like it if you gave my child coronavirus? Because, you know, they thought that maybe he had coronavirus. If you gave my child coronavirus, when I go home and she's got a grandchild, how would you like it? I'm old lady. How would you like it? And then there was another person who was sitting next to her. And then he suddenly got up because this, this horrible guy just started coming closer to the elderly lady. And he was being like, he was talking over her. He was shouting at her and she was shouting back at him. And it just become like a crazy situation. So my patient that I was with, I said, you know, we finished up our consultation. Um, I let them out the door and I could see the situation evolving. And I just said to the receptionist, look, you really need to call security. This, this needs to end right now. This elderly patient of mine is, she's old, you know, I don't want something to happen to her. This guy is breathing on her. He's wearing a mask, yes, but he's coughing in a way that makes people feel uncomfortable. And people are getting to feel really uncomfortable now because of coughs and colds that are going around, even if it is just a trivial, um, you know, cough. And then he starts shouting at her saying, I've had a COVID test and it's negative. You don't need to worry about me. I need to be seen by the doctor. And I just, I just looked and I said to the receptionist, I'm not seeing him. Get him out of the reception room. I'm not seeing him full stop. So then she, rel she relayed this to the patient and the patient was swearing and swearing as he left and he was just swearing. It was just the most distasteful thing. And um, I don't know where to go with next, but essentially I spoke to my receptionist afterwards and I said to her, was he after prescribed medications? And she said, yes, he was oh, after prescribed man. medications. And so, you know, can you imagine how much of you know, anxiety he caused? When I called in my elderly patient, I really felt like she, something was going to happen to her. She was breathless. I had to get her a glass of water. I had to sit her down. And for this particular patient, I had to sit her down for 20 minutes in my consult room. So one, it put me behind with my other patients. But two, I had to make sure that nothing was going to adversely happen to her. Because you can imagine if, for stressed example, out, yeah. she's stressed, she's shaky, you know, she could have a heart attack. I don't want that on my conscious. And all of this because somebody wanted some prescribed medications with putting on a cough, saying that he was... Um, you know, having a bronchitis, I think it was he was saying. But, you know, usually people, these, these types of people come in, they say they've got some illness, they need antibiotics, they're in pain, and they need some prescribed medications. But the problem is with these people, they don't understand that we aren't, we aren't one, we don't, we don't tolerate this kind of behavior. And secondly, we don't prescribe these medications on the first visit. We always do a check, we always call up um, the healthcare lines to make sure that they aren't prescribed prescription shoppers, and certainly most of the time they are, in which case we boot them out the front door. If we need to get security, we can. It doesn't happen often, but it did happen last week. And it's just a real good reminder that even though we've got this kind of pandemic going on with these viruses, people are still out there fetching their drugs. I just don't know what to say about that. That's terrible. It, it's upsetting. It is upsetting. And, you know, you, you just hear these stories and you just think that can't be real. But when it actually happens in your practice and you're witnessing it and it affects people around you, because then there was the, the man and the child and they were thinking, oh, my God, is this guy going to infect us? But you just think to yourself, no, he was just, you know, he was just kind of putting it on, you know, <laughs> but it's just it's, it's oh, it's, it's I guess, terrible. I guess you want to see the patient to make sure they're not just putting it on. But if they're going to start causing such a scene and such a commotion and swearing, it's there has to be a, a zero yeah. tolerance on Th swearing, there is. right? There is. And, and if they're going to, yeah. elderly lady, a baby, coughing in their faces. And standing over them as well, making a very threatening demeanor. Oh. And that kind of attitude just does not sit well with us. We, we immediately, you know, just kicked him out because it just doesn't sit well. As a practice, we don't tolerate that. As human beings, you don't tolerate that. You know, you don't tolerate somebody talking to you in a way that is so disgusting. It just, no. So if you, if you are going to, I guess the, the lesson of the story here is be polite. be polite. You know, whatever the circumstance, yes, you're in a stressful situation. We all understand that. But be polite. Whoever it is you're after, you're talking to, just be polite and have some common courtesy. You know, if you see an old fragile person be polite to them does that work for example okay you're a bit experienced now in the world of GPing. if you're younger and a patient started shouting at you you are inexperienced would you just cave in 
rather than dealing with them appropriately. I'll be honest with you, when I first started out seeing these patients, I would get really shaky and I would, my face would go red and I would kind of cow back in my seat and think, oh my God, what am I doing here? Like, you, you know, you get really frightened. At that stage in time, I still didn't, I still never gave in to these people. As much as difficult it was for me, I always used to muster up my confidence and say, I'm sorry, I can't give it to you. And then what I would do is I'd just go over to the door and I'd open the door as a security thing. I'd open the door and I'd stand by the door because just in case they would attack me or something like that. So I would never cave into them. But yes, I understand what you're saying. Yes, certainly if you if you haven't, if you've got a big burly man, for example, and you're oh. petrified, you'd probably just give you give them a script. And I do know some colleagues of mine that do say that, you know, just give them one or two tablets, get them out of your office and write a note in the computer that you would never never see them again and never give them that, that medicine but just purely from a safety perspective so yes it is scary it's frightening it is super frightening you know some practices have a panic alarm button so if you do get into a bit of a, an issue you can press on the button but generally it'll just call the receptionist to come and if it's a female receptionist you know what are you going to do um but yes certainly in the nhs we were very hot on panic alarms they, they were everywhere i just don't want to say it sounds very scary so i guess scary. they act that way so they can get get their way and it's very aggressive. Very aggressive. Very, yeah. very aggressive. Very aggressive. And, and certainly they like to intimidate people, especially if they see, you know, a female doctor, perhaps they, they think that they can intimidate them by shouting or by standing up. And I have experienced people who have stood up over me and they've been shouting at me as well. Oh. And in those situations, all I simply do is stand up myself, get the door open, stand in the middle of the corridor and say, you can leave now. Can I ask you a question? Okay. <laughs> Do you know any self-defense? Yes, yeah, so I actually, um, from the ages of, I think, from eight all the way through to 15, 16, I actually practiced Taekwondo. Okay, so you can handle your so own. I can so handle my own. Confident. So I, guess I can handle my own. As a tip to you medical potential doctors out there learning your craft, self-defense classes might be important in this field, right? But you, know, but you know, Ash, I mean, I'm saying this, you know, more often than not, you get the most sweetest, most pleasantest patients. And obviously it depends on where you're working as well. So if you're working in an area where these people don't exist, then you're probably fine. But if you're working in a, a suburb where it's a bit more, more, you know, a bit more diverse and certainly my experiences, but it doesn't happen every week. It just happens, you know, once in a blue moon. So. All right. We're going to get in more, but first there's loads of questions in the chat. I don't know if I can ask some of these questions. To be honest, Tom said. He asked a question and he said, bear in mind, doctors have been suspended for speaking out or answering this question. So maybe uh, we shouldn't address that question just in case. Sounds you Sounds thrilling. <laughs> I might not do that one, Tom, sorry. You got Sunsuna saying, hi guys. Sunsuna, you got a question? Leave a comment in the chat. You got E-Dog. E-Dog's hey, in the chat. Hey, E-Dog. He's, um, he's actually got an interesting question. I don't know if Go you can it. answer this okay, one. Okay, I'll try my best. I'll, 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 okay, it's about COVID again. He's just saying, does COVID have a distinct sound in the lungs at onset? Or are you allowed to Very visit a patient at any, oh, sorry, I can't see the fault at any hospital and suggest different medicine than the senior registrar has recommended? That is so interesting. Can you butt in? Can change? I butt in? Do you know, as a general practitioner, just, just COVID wood. aside, just generally, COVID aside, can you change a Can I change a prescription with a registrar in a hospital? Oh, that's a big debate, actually, because there is a, I mean, despite that, that we are, it is a great question. Despite that we are all medical professionals, there should be some sort of sense of camaraderie. However, and this is something that I have experienced as a general practitioner, there is often a divide between hospital doctors and GPs. And generally speaking, if we say something, they usually disagree with us and vice versa. Now, usually we don't usually butt in with each other. 
Um, that, because I don't know why. We just kind of like, you know, oh, it's the hospital doctors, oh, it's the GP. There's usually like a, a big divide between us. So would I be able to butt in and, and change someone? Only if I have a good reason to. So if there was, for example, I knew my patient was in hospital and I knew that they were giving her the wrong medicine, say, I'd probably just pick up the phone and say, you know, uh, can I just, just ch double check with you guys? You know, I prescribed her this medicine. Just want to check why you're not giving it. Maybe that might just help them, but I probably wouldn't be arrogant enough to say you're doing the wrong thing because I think that would just kind of ignite more fire between the two professions so <laughs> I probably wouldn't be able to butt in but I could perhaps give them a word of advice now with regards to listening to patients who have got corona um, their lungs that's a fantastic question fortunately or unfortunately I haven't actually seen any patients with COVID because they generally tend to go straight away to the fever clinic in the hospital. So that might be a question that needs to be asked to a hospital doctor who is working in infectious diseases. So unfortunately, I can't answer that question, um, but it's a fantastic question. I wish I knew the answer to it. One thing I have to add though is, so you don't interfere primarily with hospital doctors, but do you interfere with your colleagues' assessment of your patients? Because I know a few stories you've had where you had to change your prescription yeah. in uh, saving their lives. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Some doctors are very rushed and they make mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, even as a, you know, as a hospital doctor, I've seen some shocking, shocking, doc shocking doctors, my colleagues, and they've done some crazy dangerous things. And you just kind of review the drug chart and you think, oh my God, what were they thinking? And then you just cross it off and you kind of tell them on the side, say, hey, you know that person, why did you prescribe them potassium? They've already got potassium level of six. Like, what are you doing? Sort of thing. So that kind of thing is like crazy and then usually escalate it onto the senior as well. So certainly if there's a dangerous situation like that, 100% I will butt in, 100% I will speak out and 100% I will escalate as well to their senior. With regards to family doctoring, yes, um, I, can't, I can't even count the amount of times I've had to butt in in somebody else's practice because something's just not quite right or hasn't sit right. Um, and generally speaking, I will, I will tell the patient that, um, you know, I'm not sure why that's happened, but you know, we need to change it. And then usually I'll just flick an email through to my colleague and say, just let you know, um, you know, I didn't think that was appropriate, just changed it around, just thought I'd let you know, just as an FYI. So yes, certainly does happen. I think that's a nice thing about general practice, you kind of have each other's backs. You don't, you willingly don't want your, your colleagues or, or your, you know, your friends who work with you to do anything bad. And, and like you said, we're all pushed for time. And similarly, if I made a mistake, I would want my colleague to tell me um, rather than, you know, the patient having some adverse effect. So I don't, I'm not sort of a person who's out there to get my colleagues. I kind of want to help them as I want them to help me. So I think if you give what you, what you want to receive is best in uh, general practice and, and family and general medicine as well. But yes, I have to answer your question. I have helped, helped a few people along the way. Helped them a lot. Helped them a lot. Now we've got loads and loads of questions. Now, the next question is actually, it's, it can be amusing or it can be serious. Okay. I know, I know in Surface Paradise, you deal with a lot of sex workers yeah. and you deal with a lot of you know, sexual health and all that yeah, kind of yeah. stuff. So this question is coming in from Sean the Sheep related to that issue. But before we jump into that question yes. and the many other questions that are on the chat, I'm going to jump into a, a little mini segment from a day in the life of Surface Paradise Ooh. just to preface this, this clip. I'm back. So right in the morning, I get myself ready with my cup of coffee, which is really important for me because I need that caffeine hit. And I unpack my bag with my goodies, which include my stethoscope. And I always, always, always have my favorite pen. And I'll tell you more about why I always keep one particular pen when I'm writing my prescriptions and so on. 
As a GP, you've got to be really prepared to deal with anything that comes through your front door. So for example, today already, I know I've done some cosmetics. I know I've done some um, follow-up patients for cosmetics. I'm, not gonna be, I'm gonna be doing some family planning medicine as well. But in the middle of all of that, I'm also dealing with anxiety. I'm dealing with psychological distress. I'm also dealing with people who are coming in for routine blood pressure checks or even just the modification of their medicines. And on top of that as well, you also do meet people from all walks of life. So, um, you know, meeting sex workers, for example, and making sure that they're nice and safe and they've got their certificates ready and that they've got their testing all organized. So Okay, so uh, yes, jumping on from sexual health, we have a, a question here. Is excessive gas a symptom of too much? Mm-hmm. Too much intercourse. Wow, interesting. Well, I think that one has to be answered on an individual basis. You know, for example, what type of intercourse are you practicing? Um, you know, how often are you taking it as well? So you have to really kind of think laterally with this sort of stuff. And before you kind of get into it, you know, sexual health is really important. And yes, it is a bit of a taboo subject, but it's something that I studied for three years. I three did a diploma. I did do a diploma for three years. And everyone does it like it's no shame thank you very much um, but you know you need to kind of know all the intricacies now in terms of excess gas that could be due to a number of things it could be due to um, your gastric health as well so that could be for example you know the gut the the bacterial flora inside of your tummy is not 100% which could be causing you to have um, excessive gas or flatulence and indeed, some medical um, conditions such as irritable bowel syndrome, even some of the inflammatory bowel disease as well can cause symptoms of gas as well. Even celiac disease as well, which is a gluten intolerance. So that could be due, so excess gas in itself could be due to a whole bunch of things, not necessarily intercourse. So I'd say if you're worried about that, I would talk to your general practitioner or your family doctor about it on an individual basis to find out which of the directions you could be looking at. Speaking of more diagnosis, Sonsuna is asking a question. I mean, I've got an answer for this question, but I'm not going to be answering this question. It says, I recently realized my left hand is getting numb when I use my mobile phone. Is it normal or is it something else? Hmm, good question. So again, I probably would Instant say... Instant diagnosis. <laughs> I would say, you know, it's really important, guys. If you, this isn't going to... I'm not going to give you any medical advice over the internet because that's just not what I do. Um, you do need to see to your own general practitioner to get a full test of arrays of, of examinations, investigations, etc. However, generally speaking, I have seen lots of people who come in on their mobiles and because they're always holding their mobile phones like this, it does cause a bit of repetitive strain injury in their wrists and that can lead to things like numbness or tingling in their hands. So my biggest advice, if it purely is just related to the mobile phone then take a break every so often put it down recharge do a few stretches and if your symptoms do persist please 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 speak to your medical doctor for some more investigations because there could be underlying issues for example any nerve pathologies inside of your wrist or anything in your elbow which could be causing you to have a numb hand are you guys enjoying this before continuing on with the adventures of if you regret being a family doctor, we are going through all of your questions. So many questions. Wow. So I'm going to be asking them all right here. Next up, Lionheart. It's not really a, quest not really a question, it's a statement. Okay. What a lovely doctor. Aw, thank you, Lionheart. Whoa. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. Now we've got a good one from Michelle. Okay. Michelle, she's saying, are you supportive of return to work and recover at work philosophies for work cover patients? Often patients will say they'd ate they ain't no suitable duties. There ain't no suitable duties. I promise you employers can always offer them. Nice. So Michelle, I'm presuming that you're someone who deals with a lot of work cover patients. I um, do as well. I similarly do, do also deal with a lot of work cover patients. 
I think it's, as a general practitioner, I think it's super important to rehabilitate people back to their work because I don't think it's good for people to leave their workplace and become like institutionalized. They don't really kind of have a purpose in life. You know, they kind of lost their skills and they become de-skilled and they also take themselves out of a community where they used to have friends or they used to have a setup where they used to earn money, so financially uh, and socially as well. It's very important for people to continue at work. So me personally, I don't really believe in pushing for someone to have a, you know, a, a payment package or something like that because I don't think it's unless it's something drastic has happened I've heard some crazy work cover stories but generally speaking I really do encourage people to speak to their rehabilitation officer to see what kind of duties are available and generally speaking what we'll do is just do a gradual return to work say over a period of four months uh, you know one month or, or two months depending on what the injury was um, but I, I do all, I do like my patients going back to work because I think work is important for any human being it is important to to go to a place have a routine to earn some money to kind of socialize with other people as well um, unless of course something drastic has happened god forbid it's really interesting work really does give you purpose and it gives you a community of like yeah. co-workers to hate your managers together yeah there's a sense of camaraderie you know christmas dinners you know birthdays I, I loved working with a whole bunch of people it's like it's such a nice thing um so yeah certainly you kind of miss that and people who've been out of work and i see a lot of people who've been out of work they really miss going to work they kind of say i'm looking for a job i really want a job but they miss it so you Yes, we take it for granted and we kind of hate it when we're there, but actually when you take it away from you, it, life gets really boring. But that being said, some, some, sometimes you do get in serious accidents and oh, yeah. serious issues happen and having work cover is, is a great facility. Yeah, right. yeah, for sure. I've, I've, I can't tell you obviously the details of patients that I've, I've see, seen, um, but certainly I've seen some pretty horrific work-related injuries and I'm glad for them that work cover exists because there's no way they'll be able to support their families or have the mortgages or you know pay their mortgage or pay their schools, uh, school kids' tuition or whatever it is. So I'm happy for them that it exists. Obviously, it's very unfortunate if a work-related injury does happen, but it's, it's a nice mechanism that's set up for them. You see? That's the interesting thing about being a family doctor. You pretty much have to have an opinion or facts about everything, right? Because yeah. you have to be the core of all your patients and no matter what it is, you need to figure out what it yeah. is and refer them to the right person. Yeah, I mean, someone once said to me, when we started general practice, I don't know who it was, one of our superiors, they said to us, you have to be a specialist in everything. You have to be a specialist in life, basically. You've got to know a little bit about everything, but not too much about one thing, because a specialist will know 100% about the brain or 100% about the heart, whereas a general practitioner needs to know a little bit about everything and needs to be able to suss out what those symptoms are and what the best route is for, for referrals, if necessary, or what the diagnosis and what the management is. So you kind of have to be a bit like an encyclopedia. So it's very thrilling in that respect. And in saying that as well, we don't stop learning. So for me, for example, yes, I've done my sexual health diploma I'm now trying to smash out a sin a skin's cancer certificate which has taken me another one or two years but you know what it's worth it we we just don't stop learning you just have to keep going okay speaking of learning here's a little clip about some of the many courses you do every single weekend right hey guys good morning so it's bright and early on a Saturday morning and I'm headed to Brisbane to complete my mandatory CEMP course now this is a course that's held by the RACGP that all new fellows need to complete within six months of entering the country to work as a general practitioner and essentially what it is it's the CPR slash ALS course it includes BLS um, anaphylaxis asthma all sorts of things now traditionally in the UK uh, GPs as you know have to do this 
mandatory training once a year, which is usually takes form, you know, in about one or two hours, usually held by physiotherapists or held in practice where you're working. However, in Australia, it's a little bit different. So I've had to wake up nice and bright and early to attend an eight hour, eight hour, eight hours. Good morning, it's another Saturday morning and where is Dr. Nora off to? Well, I'm headed down to Brisbane in the Mater Education Centre to complete step three of my dermoscopy course. Now, what does that mean? Well, dermoscopy is a technique that you use to diagnose skin cancers or skin lesions in general practice. And this is a course that's held by the Australian Dermatology Society, so pretty big guys up there. It's a 12-week course that has been running since May through to September and it's comprised of online e-learning so lots of modules that I've completed and also it had a virtual clinic as well where the course facilitators posted virtual clinics or pictures of certain lesions and we had to say what those lesions were and how we'd manage them. We're coming to the end of the course now and I'm off to Brisbane to do the practical session and this is going to be actually quite fun so it's an eight hour all day practical session. Eight hour. $1,500 for an eight-hour course. It's expensive. They make you do right. it. Yeah. So you don't get paid to do the courses. You have to sacrifice your weekends. How often? Yeah. So, so some of them are compulsory. Like that one, for example, is compulsory. Some of them are additional, so I can just choose to do them myself. I probably, you know, I've just finished a course right now. It took me three months. It was a three-month course. It was an online one because what of course is <laughs> And that one cost me $1,000. So it's an investment. You don't have to do this. Like, this is just me wanting to be better and trying to learn and trying to improve my skills because I see such a huge amount of patients coming through the door. You don't have to do it. You don't have to. You can just kind of just do your normal ABCs. It's fine. Um, but for me personally, I aim to do at least um, two on average courses a year, two or three. So, yeah, it can be two, quite pricey. Three months courses a year. Or maybe one, Six yeah, months. maybe two, yeah, yeah, something like that. So at least two, at least two. Well, you do short ones too, right? I do short ones. They're not always three months in length. Some of them are shorter than that. Some of them are a bit shorter. It could be like two days um, in length. Um, but certainly, you know, I do like to keep up my brain to make sure that I'm learning things. And things are always changing in medicine. You know, what I could say to you today might change tomorrow. And it's really important to keep up with kind of what we call CPD, which is continued professional development. Um, so you just keep listening to webinars, you keep reading articles. So life outside of GP life is also very busy. Dr. Nora, I've yes. got to say, yes. you look very stylish going to Thank these you. courses. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Where do you get your clothes from? <laughs> well, you know what, maybe I'll do a fashion haul if you guys are interested of, of what I wear on a general day-to-day -day basis. <laughs> Try on haul. <laughs> Tom is asking you, have you watched Dr. Vernon Coleman on YouTube? I don't think I have. Do you no. watch doctors on YouTube? I actually don't. You don't watch YouTube, <laughs> do you? know, I'm, I'm such an old school person. I don't actually go on YouTube. <laughs> I don't watch YouTube. Well, unless you need something. Right? Unless I need something. Um, yeah, I'm very old school. I, it's I, worth checking out. It could be Dr. worthwhile. I will certainly look into that. Tom, Tom thanks a lot for the... Tom, let us know why you. should Dr. Nora watch Dr. Vernon? Please, thank you. Is I'd it, love to are know. Are they better? Are they worse? What are they like? Yeah. What is, the, what is the Vernon going on with that doctor? Another question. There's so many questions on the chat, wow, guys. Gosh, so many questions amazing. answered. Make sure you ask in the chat. Michelle, she's back. Michelle is back in the chat. Michelle, nice she's to have saying, you. She's saying, 
Is it true that it's dangerous for a woman to be on the pill if she's over 40? Mm, interesting. That's a really good question. If you've been on it for more than 20 years. Really good question, Michelle. And oh, there's more. <laughs> you're just using it to control your period. See, these what are if, what if, questions. Oh my God. We <laughs> could, Michelle, you and I, we could have a conversation about this for like half an hour just on this alone. Really? Yes, there's, there's so much out there. This could be a whole whole topic on itself. Maybe we, should do a video about it. Maybe we will. Um, I guess in a nutshell, Michelle, it depends on your individual factors. This has actually, oh gosh, very recently, a couple of months ago, um, the UK have released advice saying they're still, it's still very much in the works. It's not 100%, so don't quote me on this, but they are considering changing the guidelines to say that women can continue on the combined contraceptive pill up until the age of menopause or 50 years old. This, however, is still very much this is like top secret, still not out there yet, so it's still kind of in the works. It's still um, clarifying and making sure that everything lines up. However, let's rewind a few more years back and previously up to the age of 35 was considered as kind of the highest age to have the combined pill unless there were medical factors to continue on with it um, because over the age of five and if you're a smoker and if you've got a high BMI um, there is a slightly 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 small but increased risk of things like breast cancer and strokes and clots in the legs and the lungs so it really depends on individual factors your GP can talk to you about this on an individual level if it's for period I mean I, I have patients who are on the pill over the age of 35 and as long as you're aware of those risks and you know as I said to you that the guidelines are changing so there might be a bit more leniency now um, in terms of carrying on until the age of 50 it's all very very new it's all very coming up and coming I will probably do another video about this when it's all solidified in writing um, in terms of the length of the duration you've been on the pill or someone's been on the pill for it is important to take breaks in the pill as well and again it does depend on your own individual medical factors however if you're considering just thinking about your period regulation and it's not so much for contraception there are some really fantastic contraception options out there for you if you want to consider them, which may be a bit safer um, if you are over the age of 40. And there is one, I did a video about this, which is the IUDs, which is the hormonal IUD, which in Australia is called the Marina, and we have a new one called the Kylina, which is out in February earlier this year. And that actually helps to make your periods a lot lighter, less painful, and probably non-existent as well. So check that video out if that is interesting to you. It is safer because it only releases progesterone. This is getting too technical, but well, it only releases worthy. progesterone, <laughs> um, not the, the estrogen, which is the one that can cause those issues, as we mentioned before. But it could be worthwhile thinking about um, for period regulation. You do also have a bunch of other things as well such as the depot the implant arm which is the rod that sits in the arm but that is like a whole different topic by itself but I guess to answer your question very new we don't know yet 100% there are talks in the works in the UK that we can continue on the pill potentially up until the age of menopause um, however this is all very new we're not 100% sure yet um, but it's, it's getting there um, primarily if you are continuing over the age of 35 have a chat to your GP speak about kind of your risk factors if there's a family history really important to know if there's any breast cancer in the family any strokes any clots any blood disorders if you're a smoker if you've got high BMI there's a whole plethora of things that need to be covered to have that conversation uh, but I would suggest having it with your general practitioner if it is concerned to yourself um, or coming down to see me in clinic if you are local all right, Dr. Nora, it sounds yes. like you're a knowledge dropping machine. Oh. I can tell that you've attended a lot of courses. I spent a lot of money. <laughs> so as a doctor, you do go to a lot of courses, but is it all revision? Is it all study? Is it all exams? Or have there been some fun events and courses that you've attended? No, they're not all. They're, oh, sorry, that, sorry, sorry. I have a little clip screen, a cut scene to show you 
some of the courses you actually go Good morning everybody, Dr. Nora here, and where am I off to today? Well, it is bright and early on a Saturday morning, and I am off to learn the latest and the greatest in women's health. And I can't wait to share with you what I learned today from what the new advancements in technology are, how the treatments have changed, and so much more. Oh, did I forget to mention? Is that the Versace? See you on the inside. Nora here and the sun is now setting on the Commonwealth Games 2018 in the Gold Coast. It has been such an honour and a pleasure to be part of this wonderful experience from the interview process. <laughs> it's ticklish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just ticklish. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can feel the muscles contracting. <laughs> wow, okay, the, the muscles are really contracting. I also feel that my legs are contracting as well. Like, not only is my butt contracting, but my hamstrings and my quads are contracting, so it feels, it feels so funny. <laughs> oh, God. This is such a weird... <laughs> she did. It's such a weird sensation. Like, it's like someone is knocking on my bottom and, like, doing little sharp, like, pricks of energy over it. I think you get used to it. I think it just takes you by surprise because I'm not used to this. It's like little... <laughs> it's funny because it has two different types of magnetic field. So the first bit is like really like a pinprick and then it gets stronger in severity. It's such a weird feeling. Versace, yes. you got the Commonwealth Games. Yes. You got what was going on there. With it's the not all studying. <laughs> you know what? Explain yourself. What was first? Go on. But you know what? Sometimes if you work hard, you can play hard as well. So very fortunately, we do have the beautiful Versace Hotel that is just around the corner from us over here on the Gold Coast. So as general practitioners, family doctors, we often get invited to uh, conferences which can be taking place in some very swanky locations. And as you saw, the Versace was one of them. So, and that's free to attend. Like, can you imagine? It's free. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to that for sure. It's the first time I've been to Versace. Thank you very much. I actually went subsequently and it wasn't as good. So it's, you know, it's free. Free, free is always, always the best. Anyhow, um, yes, yeah, so definitely the free sort of seminars. And like you said earlier, it's not always learning. It's sometimes it's just refreshing knowledge. Um, the second one you showed was ASAPS, which was a the largest non-surgical symposium in Australasia, which actually I had the pleasure of actually presenting um, over there in Sydney in the International Convention Centre. I was presenting a digital application that I had been working studiously on for the past couple of years called treatment pad which allows me as a general practitioner and a cosmetic doctor to take instant before and after pictures yeah, side by side yes download now it's available from the ios store it's fantastic it saves, <laughs> saves all of my time in clinic um, but i actually presented that in front of 200 people in uh, sydney's convention center which was awesome alongside some fantastic cosmetic practitioners and you got to test the machines right and i got to test the machines. so you know as i always say if it works on me it's going to work on you i have to make sure it's safe right 
<laughs> so you can have a lot of fun being a doctor for sure. And what was that Commonwealth Games about? Oh my goodness, yeah. So back in 2018 when we had the Gold Coast Games, I was actually very honoured to be selected as a volunteer doctor over in the Athletes Village, over in the uh, Gold Coast Commonwealth Centre. And I was looking after patients, or athletes, rather I should say, from all sorts of places actually, all, all the different countries. I had some fascinating people, I saw some fascinated things. You treated the medal winner, right? I treated, yeah, I treated the bronze medalist for, I think it was boxing, I think, the heavyweight or lightweight. Um, you know, I, I saw some really, really fantastic things. And I, one of the funniest thing I, I saw, and I was going on with sexual health was the uh, <laughs> was the amount of condoms they had in uh, just like their the massive box just and by there. the end of it it was gone it was gone <laughs> so you know what it's, it's been fantastic I can't I can't lie I probably would never been able to experience this sort of stuff if I was a hospital doctor so yes I'm very grateful that I chose this career I'm going to ask Dre's question right sure because he's asked it twice he really wants to know okay he says Great video. Thank you. What stethoscope do you have? Oh, <laughs> How many videos have you made on stethoscopes? Dre, I have done literally four or five videos on my stethoscopes. They're very popular. Go and check them out. This is a Lippmann Classic 3. I love it. I've got three of them. It does the job well. It's fantastic. Definitely recommend. I've got about four different videos on my channel, so check them out um, if you want to check out which stethoscope I recommend. I've dabbled with an electronic Bluetooth stethoscope before, a manual one. I've even had a stemoscope, which is a tiny weeny handheld stethoscope, which is not for clinical use, but more for fun. So so do check them out, Dre. I hope that is useful for you. I'm just laughing because the stream never got cut. It's just my laptop. Oh, is that right? Yeah. All right, we've got some questions over here. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Nora. I You're love following your channel. Thank I appreciate you. you taking the time to answer my questions tonight. And they're in Brisbane. They might oh, even see you in appointment. Thank you. Appreciate it. More than welcome, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you're more than welcome to come by. More than happy. Another person saying, Mr. Flash, he's saying, you get props for driving a sports car. What's it like Thanks. driving a sports car and why does it have your name on the license plate? What's Dr. going on? Nora, you know what, in Queensland where I live, um, you can actually have anything on your license plate. You can have I heart emoji you, like some people, I've seen that. Um, but what's it like having a sports car? It's, it's cool, it's awesome, it's very sexy, it's very flash. It drives faster because it's red, <laughs> naturally. Um, why do I have my name on it? Well, I guess, why not? You know, you can do it, so why not? <laughs> and I kind of want to be in one of those situations where like there's an emergency and then Dr. Nora drives up, you know. <laughs> you say, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm a PhD doctor. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm very fortunate. I love my car. I'm very fortunate. I'm very grateful. Yes, I'm still very humble. I know that I have a flashy car, but I'm very grounded and I appreciate where I've come from and where I am today. It's just a bit of fun, isn't it? A bit of fun. A bit of fun. All right, next up, we got Sunsoon. She's saying thank you. And she's given you not one, not two, not three, but four roses. Thank you. Whoa. Thank you so that much. Even a thank question. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you. I appreciate go. that. Thank you so much. Next up, we got Jenna. And she's saying, any chance your app will be available on Android? Very good question. I'm going to, Jenna, thank you so much for tuning in and also for your interest in the app. I will have to defer that one to my tech support and uh, we will get back to you soon. Got another question. This is just the latest question. We've got so many questions. I'm just going to jump to this one. Okay. Come on, Dr. Nora. 
We want less to your heartbeat. <laughs> oh my gosh, you guys, I would love to do it, but I haven't got it set up today. You've got so many videos I've already. got so many videos. The last live, one of the last that lives we did yeah, was, was of live, the heartbeat. heartbeat. Um, you know, if there's enough interest, we can do another one, I guess. But technical. We, yeah, it does take a, bit, it takes a bit of technical stuff, but we can get it set up. We can't do it today because it's just too technical. Lung sounds. Um, lung sounds. That'd be awesome. Back sounds. If you guys want to hear Leg lung sounds, tummy sounds, or any other kind of sounds, let me know. Um, I'm more than happy to set it up next time. Michelle wants to know, is there any way we can, anywhere we can get the prices for your cosmetic procedures? Great question, Michelle. Um, thank you so much. Um, so Australian law prohibits me from advertising how much my cosmetics are online. So unfortunately you just have to call up the practice and the beautiful receptionist will be able to tell you how much we charge per unit for anti-wrinkle and how much a mill is of filler. But yes, any of the practices I work at will be happy to assist you with that. Mr. Flash is back. He's saying, lol, laugh out loud. He's very impressed with your driving uh, license plate Thank situation. Thank you. There you go. Thank you, Lon Mr. Flash. E-Dog. Hey. Do you rely solely? This is a technical question. Technical okay. question. You okay. need to, you braced yourself. I'm bracing. Okay, bracing. E-Dog, he's saying, do you rely solely on what an ECG computer tells you? Mm. Or do you listen with your stethoscope and make your own assessment? Very good question. Ooh. You know, E-Dog, one of the first things we were taught is to never, ever, ever believe what was written on the report of an ECG because never. it's always rubbish. Always rubbish. And to be honest with you, it can be. And so what I do generally is I look at it, but I don't take it verbatim of what it will be. So usually I'll just interpret the ECG myself and then I'll look at it and say, hmm, that was right or hmm, that's a bit wrong. Um, but no. I, I rely on my brains because <laughs> that's, what, that's what we've been taught. But you know, speaking of ECGs, I had a lot of comments saying that they want to see ECGs. So I was thinking maybe we could use you as a model for an ECG. What do you guys think? Let us know in the comment section below whether you would like to see a real life ECG being taken off the machine, kind of like scrubs or house. Yeah, I'm all right with it as long as there's no needles in my face. That's what happened last time. No, no, there's no needles. It's just the sticky first, tape. Sticky. The first heads of medical was, was it live injection? It was live injectables. In my face, my if face you guys, was getting injected. Michelle, if you're interested in injectables, I don't know if you've ever had injectables before, but you can take a look at. I've got so many videos on my channel about injectables. You can take a look what it's like, what it feels like, what the heart sound sounds like when you're having injectables as well. So oh, do that check that out. A bit of fun. All right, we've been coming up to over an hour wow. live Q&A, Dr. Nora. I really enjoyed so guys, it. Guys, guys, if you have any more questions, make sure you leave a comment in the live chat session. Michelle's saying, thanks so much. Hope you guys have a fabulous night. Thank I you, I love Michelle. this live chat. Thank we you. We loved having you here. And to finish this off, we're going to jump off to graduations. You've graduated not just in the UK, but in Australia. Which has been nicer? Hmm. While she thinks about that other question, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to cut to what it was like graduating over here in Australia. And there's a full video, of course, you can check it out.
graduation looks well, amazing. <laughs> do you know what? Graduation is actually really stressful. It's yeah. so stressful, yeah. So I graduated three times because, you know, whatever. <laughs> so the first time I graduated was obviously from my medical degree, which is in the UK. And that was, I think I was so nervous and you could see me there putting on my shoes. And actually the funniest thing was I actually put my shoe, <laughs> I put the wrong shoe on the wrong foot because that's how nervous I was at that time. It was nice though because I'd finally become a doctor and it was a great experience and a great feeling. The second time I graduated was in, was for my Royal College of General Practitioners over in the UK. That one was actually really low key. They had it in like, um, a small conference room, a little bit of food that was not that special. So that one wasn't so great. But then I had my RACGP graduation, which is my Royal Australian College of General Practitioners graduation. And that was a lot more grand. They had like a dance floor, they had food. I'd say that probably was the highlight of all of my graduations. So the Australian one mm. was better than the UK one? Yeah, I think they just have more money in Australia. <laughs> I think it's just more space. More space, Maybe yeah. Maybe because they had a bigger venue, whereas they used the existing venues over in the UK. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and maybe because I'd, more, more, I'd grown up a bit as well, so perhaps that helped as well. It's mm, very interesting. We've got, we've got a fan over here. We've got Dinesh, she said, hello. Hello, doctor. Hello. 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 <laughs> I want to be your patient. Dinesh, what are you doing? <laughs> go. If you, want, if you want to see a doctor, just go to your local GP. They're all everywhere in the world. Oh, yeah. And GPs guys, are everywhere. Yeah? Yeah. So speaking of which, yes. you've, you've said you've, you've both worked in Australia and you've worked in the UK. What's the difference in working in the UK versus Australia? Do you know, Ash, that's like a whole video by itself. Uh, speaking of which, <laughs> you actually have a video of you working Do in I? the UK. <laughs> No, I wasn't nervous initially. I just thought, oh, whatever, it's going to be a normal GP practice. I'm just going to sit there, do my thing, four hours, whatever, get over and done with. However, I met a local family who were like, oh my God, you're working in Peckham. Oh my God, you better be careful. You can't leave. You, you know, you're going to get mugged. So I've got about three more patients left to see for my morning. It's gone by really quickly. I have to say, the kind of preamble that I had about, oh, you're going to get mugged, you're going to get this and that, actually made me feel really kind of like this in front of my patients, which has actually helped because they're actually quite friendly, which is bizarre. Pretty much the medication's the same. Um, you know, you have your guidelines, you can just follow that by. Okay, so that was the UK. I guess you had fun over there in the UK. Do you miss it? I did. <laughs> so no, <laughs> maybe not that experience. No, no, but you know, my last experience from the UK, prior to this previous experience, um, was actually the last patient I ever saw in the UK as a general practitioner was so annoyingly rude that oh. I just thought to myself, mm, I'm gone. I don't what, want to be. What was so anymore. bad about it? He came in and he demand. He came from another country, and I forget which one it was, but it was another European Union country. And he came in demanding, his young chap, very, very healthy, young chap says, I need a blood test. And I said to him, well, why do you need a blood test? He said, I just need one. It's what we do in our country. We have blood tests. And as an NHS doctor, we're, as you guys may know, we're very, very tight on budgets. And we don't do anything unnecessarily unless there is a clinical symptom or unless there's a clinical reason. So this guy had no clinical reason. I went through all my questions. I said, well, are you this? Are you that? Are you this? I said, no, 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 no. I just want a blood test. You should give me one now. 
And I just thought, gosh, this is very entitled of you to come in and demand for a blood test without any particular reason why. And so, you know, I politely had to refuse and say, I'm sorry, the NHS, you know, we can't do that because everybody on the street can come in and have a blood test, but that money needs to go and fund a cancer patient or it needs to go and fund a surgery or brain cell, you know, something like that. And he just couldn't understand it. And that for me just felt like, God, what has the world come to? Entitlement. Entitlement. Mm. And for me, I just thought, no, I don't want to be part of this anymore. And I don't like to reject people. If someone wants something done, then sure, but not on the on the money of a, an already strained economy. So NHS is strained, we don't need to add more to it. You know, it's a, so much debt. We need to give that money to people who are having radiotherapy, chemotherapy, not just because you want a blood test, because you want to know that you're healthy. You know, I'd love, I'd love to see you sit down and go through the NHS budget and see if you can trim some fat. <laughs> Well, you know, some some procedures. Well, not even that, but they say that the most money goes to the admin staff Yo. and the managers oh. and things. So that's sad. You know what else is sad? Dinesh, I'm going to just say this out to you. You go to the doctor when you're ill, okay? <laughs> I'm not going to mention what they said, but there is a great question from Sean the Sheep. Hey, Sean, Sean the Sheep. Sheep is back. Sheep back with back. another question. Mm. This one is saying, is having a baby at 40 too late or bad? at 40, 40 years old. 40. It happens, all the celebrities yes. are doing it. Janet Jackson had one at 50. So I think when it comes to fertility, women have a nap. So men, men are, they're okay. They, they, men always produce sperm and that's like something that's an ongoing thing. So they can have, um, you know, babies up until whenever. But women are born with a finite number of eggs in their ovaries from the time that they are embryos. So they have, I think it's like 20 million eggs, but that diminishes and quite considerably when they're born. So every time they have a menstrual cycle, they lose an egg. And so what happens is your fertility, or a woman's fertility actually goes down as she gets older. So usually what they tend to say is that conceiving after the age of 35 generally tends to be a bit harder than if you were under the age of 35. But in saying that though, I have personally had patients who have conceived at the age of 40 and they've had beautiful, healthy babies or even IVF babies as well. So um, it's not bad necessarily, it obviously depends on your medical condition, um, but you know, usually a doctor will support you and give you the right kind of medicines. I guess as long as your general health is good and healthy, there's no reason why you couldn't if your fertility is still 100%. But the one thing that you have to bear in mind is as the maternal age goes up, the risk of chromosomal abnormalities in a newborn will also go up as well. But that's a discussion that you can have with your doctor. Um, and they, you know, there's all sorts of tests. The fantastic tests out there now, there's uh, non-invasive um, testing that can be done just from a blood supply, eight weeks of gestation that can tell you if you've got any chromosomal abnormalities in the fetus, um, to even sort of taking samples as well of the amniotic fluid. So technology is emerging, might even do, if you're interested, we can do a, a whole separate conversation about fertility because it's huge. And especially now as well, women are more career-driven they don't really think about babies so much until later on in life so there's a whole discussion about egg preservation um, fertility tests IVF and it's a whole new world so I'd say generally speaking from my perspective as a family doctor the age of which women are having babies is a lot older than what it was in the past so for age of 40 having a baby probably isn't an uncommon thing nowadays yeah I think I think the word bad sounds bad I wouldn't call it bad maybe higher risk more risky maybe that's the word yeah. but not not Bad. Yeah, and generally speaking, if you are a high-risk pregnancy, you're going to be looked after by an obstetrician rather than a general practitioner. So, generally speaking, you'll have a doctor, a specialist. hospital, yeah, a specialist looking after you to make sure that nothing untoward happens. But yes, like Ash said, that the risks are increased. All right, so this has been a riveting chat. Live questions being asked, live answers being given. Dr. Nora, I want to finish the show just showing some of the amazing places you've worked at in Australia. So this place you worked at is in Ely Beach, rural GP. It's where all the yachts are. 
uh, holiday destination. Coconut trees. Coconut trees. <laughs> Amazing, I've never seen a coconut tree in my life. <laughs> so I'm going to show you guys a little clip from a video Dr. Norris has made before where she worked up north in Queensland, Early Beach. my morning session down here in Early Beach and I have to say it was really similar to any sort of clinic surgery that I've had in my previous jobs for example in the Gold Coast or even in London as well so really similar setup patients come in usually most patients I saw this morning were very local to the area there were one or two tourists that came in for um, coughs and colds very minor ailments one of the interesting things that I did notice was over here because it is quite rural you have to sort of make sure that you're asking questions to reflect that. So say for example, there was a young boy that came in today with his mum and he had a rash and Yes, you take the normal history about rashes, when did it come on, etc., etc. But one of the other things you need to ask about is, you know, we're so rural, was it like a snake bite? Was it a spider bite? Was it something funky like that? Um, so I found myself thinking that's a really interesting thing and a really interesting difference between here versus, say, London, where we don't have snakes, we don't have spiders. So that was pretty cool. Dr. Nora, that was amazing. You make, you make working as a doctor look so glamorous. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you just rock up with your handbag. <laughs> I do love my job. I, I love my job with a passion. You need to do a that. tour around Australia. I'd love to. That'd, That'd be, be great. I guess not this time, but you know, oh, yeah, when, when things uh, settles. When the borders are open again. Okay, so to finish off the show, do you regret being a doctor? Absolutely not. I love it. <laughs> you love it. You definitely love <laughs> you know, it. There are times when it's hard and I think, oh my gosh, what am I doing? When the times, you know, when I'm running late and I want to go home and I'm tired. But honestly, on the grand scheme of things, I love my job. If anybody out there wants to become a doctor or wants any tips about how to get through medical school or just anything like that, let me know in the comment section below. I'll be happy to do a video or even do another live session with you guys if you want to. Um, because I'm all about supporting you through your careers as well. Or if you're in medical school right now and things are getting a bit stressful and hectic and you're being driven. Driven, like you were driven back in hospital days, yeah. you were driven really hard. Yeah. You know, there's so much estuaries, there's so many different pathways yeah. you can go and take your medical career into yeah. so many different stages. Yeah. There's so many different pathways. You don't have to be a doctor in a hospital, you don't have to be a GP. There's so many different other you can be a pathologist, you can be behind a microscope, you can be either so you can be a forensic doctor. So much out there. It's such a rewarding career and you've got so much opportunities. Have a think about what you want to do and let me know if I can help in any way. There you go. So we're going to finish off the show with one question. The most asked about comment in your last videos. Yes. What's your favorite pen? Oh my god. What's that, what's that about? Well, you let know, us know. I, I said, there's actually two things I want to touch upon before we shut okay. the show. The first thing is I said in my last, um, one of my last videos said I always use one pen. Yeah, why? Why? Well. I use one particular pen, I'm not even going to tell you which one it is because it's something Ooh, that I'm going to just keep to myself. There's one particular pen that I keep because I have learnt over time that people who want to do naughty things may sometimes fraudulently use your signature oh. in something. And it has happened to me where somebody has used my signature. So that's why you keep um, So I keep pen. a particular pen so that if the pharmacist sees a different signature, they might think, hmm, something's going on here. Oh. But yes, that is why I keep one particular pen. There you go. 
broadcast lives the secrets of Dr. Nora's script writing abilities. Yes. Hope you guys found this amazing Thank episode you. of Heads Ash. of Medical. There's one more. Well, no, okay. Just she, one more. she wants one to more. give out one more information. Time. Everyone is watching the show. Everyone wants to know. Last, last thing. Because in my last video, I asked everyone a question. I said, when I did the tour of my um, Southport surgery room, I said, what is the light for? And we got a whole oh. bunch of questions. Oh, that light. <laughs> That light. Okay. We got somebody saying, is it for facial rejuvenation or rejuvenation of the feet? Is it for if something stuck inside somewhere, you can fish it out? Is it for pap smears? Is it for examination of the feet? You know what? All of the answers you gave me were pretty much all right because, you know, that, right. location, <laughs> that location is primarily used for examination of the lower half of the body, which can be for female examinations, for male examinations. Males. Yeah, because sometimes we do bottom examinations, um, but I also use it for my skin checks as well. So yes, you were all right, and thank you so much for contributing to that video. I appreciate it. There you go. Hope you guys found this amazing episode of Heads of Medical amazing. Make sure you stay tuned for more live sessions. You got loads of thank yous over here on the chats. Everyone's saying, whoa, is that an amazing British accent? Whoa, thank you so much. I want another live session. Yes. So thanks guys for tuning in. Let us know how your medical careers are going. Are you working in the field? Are you planning on being a doctor? Or are you just a fan of you know people that help people? I'm a fan. You want to sign off, Dr. Nora? Yes, guys. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure chatting with all of you. And I've really enjoyed being here as well with you, answering your questions. And of course, if you have any more questions or comments, please don't hesitate to drop me a line in the comment section below. Ash, I want to thank you for joining me today. And thank you guys again. I'll see you next time. Take care and stay healthy.